was a kid, I collected stuff. I think a lot of kids do this, but my room was full of all sorts of little random things that I collected that I thought for some reason were really important to me in my pre-teen and my teenage life. I had a four-shelf bookshelf um, immediately as you walked into my room, uh, painted in Mission Brown, because I grew up in the 70s and the 80s, as ugly as. But anyway, I had this four-shelf bookshelf, and there were books on the bottom couple of shelves, but the top two shelves were full of all my stuff, right? So there, was, uh, there were a couple of uh, trophies there uh, from tournaments that I won playing squash. Um, there were some uh, sort of random, I don't know what you call them, sort of memorabilia things that I'd bought on a holiday. You know, we went somewhere and I thought this thing was, you know, some great memory of where we went. That was sitting there. Um, I think there were a couple of special shells. They were special to me, but, you know, shells that I'd found somewhere on a beach somewhere. And I thought we needed to keep those. Um, there was my beloved uh, F-14 Tomcat model because I grew up in the 80s watching the original Top Gun and so there was a, uh, you know, a plastic model aeroplane thing that I'd, that I'd made and hand-painted and, and all sorts of other random things. Well, things that now seem random. At the time, every one of those things had a story and every one of those things I would say was really important to me but looking back now, it was just random junk. Right, but at the time, those two shelves—they were like my—I guess they were—they were my little shrine to my life. Right, they were all the, the special things that were important to me. I, I guess you could say that that shelf was full of 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 the idols in my life, because idols come in all shapes and sizes, don't they? Sometimes when we think about idols, we think about sort of you know gold statues or religious artifacts or something like that, but. Um, Idols can look pretty normal too. We can idolise a person. Sometimes we talk about, you know, we idolise a particular singer or a sports person. Uh, sometimes we talk about idolising a boyfriend or a spouse or a partner. Some people even sort of idolise their children. We talk about idolising people. We talk about idolising things, um, you know, a car or a house, a clothing collection. Lego, if you live in my house, you know, these things can become <laughs> idols to us. We can idolise experiences, parties with friends or uh, the next holiday, you know, becomes sort of a, an, an idol for us. Daily exercise. We can idolise jobs and careers, the job that we're in, our next dream job. For some people, it's just the importance that they feel at work. You know, they go to work and they're an important person. People respond to them. People look up to them. People do what they say. All these things can become idols in our lives. They can become things that we sort of set up as gods in our lives. Tim Keller wrote a book called Counterfeit Gods. And he defines an idol this way. He says, an idol is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. And anything that you seek to give, what you should only give to God. Now, if you're listening to this and you're not a Christian, um, then I guess you don't need to have God at the centre of your life. And you can sort of set anything up there that you like, I guess. But if you're listening to this and you're a Christian, 
if you call yourself a follower of Jesus, then that decision means that you have given that central place, that most important place in your life to Jesus. And replacing Jesus at the center of your life with anything else, that's the definition of idolatry. That's the definition of idol worship. Because God wants that place in your life. God deserves that place in your life. Over a thousand years uh, before Jesus lived and died, God spoke to Moses about idols. We call it the Ten Commandments, if you've heard that or find it. It's way back in Exodus chapter 20, uh, near the beginning of your Bible. And God speaks this to Moses, well, to the people through Moses. He says, I am the Lord your God. Verse 3, chapter 20, verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol in the form of anything, anything in the heavens above, on the earth below, or in the waters beneath. That's kind of old Bible language uh, way of saying anything, anywhere. You shall not bow down to them or worship them. But it's not easy, is it? It's not, it's not as easy to say, well, okay, we, we just won't worship idols then because we're all tempted. We're all tempted to take other things and to put them in that most important place in our life. We're all tempted to take things and to put them in a place in our life where only God should be. And the awkward truth is, and I like we like kind of talking about the awkward truth in this place. The awkward truth is that many of us like the idols that we put there. I mean, God's okay, but so is money, right? Jesus is great, but so is my boyfriend, my partner, my spouse. My Christian life is really important to me, but so is my work. And so is my sport and so is my hobby. And so in this series, we're going to dive headfirst into idols. We're going to talk about idol worship. We're going to talk about some of the most commonly worshipped idols. We're going to look at what they do in our lives and what we can do to get Jesus back in the centre of our lives. And I want to tell you at the front of this series, right up front, that if we are honest and open with ourselves and with one another, there will be uncomfortable parts of this series. There will be awkward moments where we have to admit to ourselves and to others that, well, I never thought of myself as an idol worshipper, but actually now I think about it, there probably are things that are shifting themselves into that place in my life. But I want to tell you that talking about this stuff, that confronting these idols in our life might also lead you to freedom. It might also lead you to deepen your relationship with God. It might also lead you to recenter your life around the things that are really most important to you and really most important to your life. So I thought we'd start with what is probably the biggest idol in our 21st century Australian culture. And we'd start with the idol of happiness. 
ouch, yeah, there's that look like, oh, I thought you were going to start with, you know, Ferraris or a mansion on the beach, you know, something soft and easy that I could say, well, I'm not really into that, so phew, you know, I'm safe for a week. The reality is that for many of us in this culture, culture, happiness has become an idol. Now, everyone wants to be happy, right? That's okay. I mean, happiness is better than not being happy, right? But many, we've turned happiness into a kind of God in our life. We seek it. We, we hunger after it. We worship happiness. In fact, for many of us, the idol of happiness sits right under the surface of so many of the decisions that we make on a day-to-day basis. The things we do, the things we buy, the people we hang out with, the jobs that we take, right under the surface of those is the idol of happiness, that above all, we want to be happy. The good news is that if there's any part of you that goes, oh, that's probably me, that you're not alone. That you're not alone and, and, the, uh, and the idol of happiness is not a new thing. I was reading around uh, this stuff during the week and I came across a 4,000-year-old Babylonian proverb that goes like this. Fill your belly. Day and night make merry. Let days be full of joy. Dance and make music day and night. These alone are the things that should concern men. But the problem with the idol of happiness is that happiness is an empty God. Happiness is an empty God. Happiness never really satisfies, does it? The more we get, the more we want. We, we, we see something that we think is going to make us happy. We chase after something thinking, if I just get that, if I can just do that, if I can just be with that person, I'll be happy. But we all know the way the story goes. You get that thing and you're happy for a while and then what happens? I'm not happy and we need to chase after something else to be happy again. In fact, psychologists will tell us that the more we chase the idol of happiness, the more miserable we become. I was reading uh, some words from uh, human behaviour expert Dr. Patrick Wanis uh, during the week, and he said this. He said, we place our happiness somewhere off in the future, and therefore we're never able to enjoy where we are now because we're always thinking that we're only going to be happy when we get to be or do or have something. If we're not reaching those milestones that we think are tied to happiness, like success and wealth and marriage, we feel a sense of disappointment. We not only become disappointed, we become distant. Maybe you start to criticise yourself. Maybe you start to feel guilty for not feeling happy that you've got this thing. People become disillusioned and they start experiencing inner emptiness. But I want to tell you, none of this would come as a surprise to the Apostle Paul. Paul was just a boy when Jesus was uh, resurrected. In fact, we don't, we, we're pretty sure that um, Paul never met Jesus uh, before his death and resurrection. But as a young man, 
Paul had a profound experience of Jesus. You can read about it in Acts chapter 9 in your Bible. And, and as a result of that, Paul not only became a follower of Jesus, but he just threw himself full on into following Jesus and he became a leader in the early church. But life was really smooth sailing for Paul. In fact, his life was full of all sorts of opposition and troubles and problems. He had opposition from people outside the church who were angry that he was you know, talking to people about Jesus and, and what Jesus would mean for life. But he also had a whole lot of opposition from people inside the church, inside the established church, the established Jewish church, who didn't like the stories, didn't like the truth about Jesus and what that meant for them. And so Paul actually, Paul found himself uh, in trouble a lot with people. He in fact found himself in prison on a number of occasions. And on one of those stints in prison, he wrote a letter to a church in Philippi, to a church in a city of Philippi some way away. The backstory of this letter is that the Philippians have heard that Paul is in prison in Rome probably. And so they've sent one of their members, a guy called Epaphroditus, they've sent Epaphroditus with a bag of gifts to give to Paul in prison. We don't know exactly what it was, but it was likely that they brought in food and clothing, maybe some writing materials so that he could continue to write letters and things like that. Things that would be essential for Paul to survive in a first century prison. And at the end of the letter that Paul writes back to the church, so while Epaphroditus is there with him, Paul writes a letter to the church in Philippi for Epaphroditus to take back to them. And at the end of that letter, Paul writes these words. I rejoice greatly in the Lord that at last you've renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you've been concerned, but you've had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I'm in need, for I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do everything through him who gives me strength. Paul thanks them for their concern. He thanks them for the gifts. He's saying, hey, you know, thanks that you're thinking of me again, sending me gifts. Thanks for your generosity, but actually I was happy anyway. Which I don't know about you, but that's a pretty amazing thing to say from a guy who's in prison, right? Thanks for the gift, but you know what? I was getting on just fine without them. They're great, but I was fantastic without them. I was happy even without them. I don't know what happiness looks like to you in your life, but it probably doesn't look like prison, right? Paul says, I've learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation. Here's a guy who clearly isn't worshipping the idol of happiness. So I ask myself, how did he do that? What was it in Paul's life that could enable him? What was it happening in his life, in his heart, in his mind? How could he sit in prison and write to the church in Philippi, thanks so much for sending me this stuff, 
but I was content anyway. There was a happiness in me that was not connected to my soul. Even though I'm in prison, even though I didn't have stuff, I was still content. I was still happy. I think we can learn a couple of things about overcoming the idol of happiness from the life of Paul. A couple of things when we read the rest of the letter that he wrote to the Philippians. A couple of things that really leap out. The first thing I notice about Paul is that Paul was clear on how important Jesus was to him. Paul was absolutely clear that that central place in his life belonged to no one except Jesus. Listen to this. This is a, a, in your Bibles, a chapter before when Paul wrote the letter. It didn't have chapters in verses, but in your Bibles, this is a chapter before in Philippians 3, verse 7 and 8. Paul writes, But whatever was gain, whatever was good, whatever was profitable, whatever was valuable in my life, but whatever was gain to me, I count as a loss for the sake of Christ. Actually, more than that, I count all things as loss compared to the, listen to this, the surpassing excellence of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I might gain Christ. Other things might be good. Other things might be value. But Jesus is definitely the most valuable thing to Paul. He says, in fact, compared to Jesus, compared to Jesus, everything else that I had that was valuable in my life is like rubbish. Compared to Jesus, it's all garbage. Nothing else will satisfy me like Jesus does. Paul knew 2,000 years ago what psychologists are rediscovering today, that chasing happiness is actually the quickest path to unhappiness. Worshipping the idol of happiness leads to emptiness and disillusionment and sometimes even to depression. And Paul says the solution isn't less happiness. The solution is more Jesus. The solution isn't less happiness. The solution is more Jesus. The way to free yourself from worshipping the idol of happiness is to put Jesus at the centre of your life very clearly and to worship him instead. Paul was absolutely clear on how important Jesus was to him. The other thing I think we can learn from Paul's life is that gratitude for today defeats the idol of happiness tomorrow. Gratitude for today defeats the idol of happiness tomorrow. Paul wraps up his letter uh, to the Philippians, encouraging them to pray. And I want you to listen to how he talks about prayer. Philippians 4, beginning uh, to read in verse 4, Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer... And petition, that means asking, by prayer and asking God, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts 
and your minds in Christ Jesus. The New Living Translation uh, writes verse 6 this way. It says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all that he has done. Paul says, make gratitude a central part of the way that you pray. Paul actually writes almost the same thing in just about every letter that he writes. When he writes to the Colossians, he says, devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. When he writes a letter to the church in Thessalonica, we call it 1 Thessalonians in your Bible. He says, rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances because this is God's will for you. See, because the idol of happiness is always chasing something out in the future. If I could just get, if I could just go to, if I could just do, if I could just be with. Gratitude for today helps squash that hunger for tomorrow. The idol of happiness sort of keeps us focused on the future, (coughs) focused on what we don't have. Gratitude keeps us focused on today, on the present, and on what we do have. Can you see the difference? And a moment of honesty, if you're like me, I found myself writing this week thinking, how do I pray? And if you're like me, too many of your prayers are about asking God for the future. God, help my maths test go well tomorrow. Jesus, my mum's sick. Please heal her. God, help me get a better job. Give me a boyfriend. Help me pay my bills, etc., etc., etc. Not nearly enough of my prayers are about thanking God for today. God, thank you for being with me today, even when it was tough. Jesus, thank you for my mum. God, thank you that I, that I have a job at all. Thank you for my friends. Thank you for the way that you provide for me, etc., etc., etc. When someone asks you what you want prayer for, when you're sitting in a group, in your small group, or before or after church, someone says, what can we pray for? Where do your first thoughts go? Do they go to your problems and to what you need and to what you want? Or do they go to thankfulness? Do you know what you can pray for me? Just just join with me and pray. I'm just so thankful for this. I'm so thankful for what God's done today, for what he did yesterday, for what he's doing right now. Paul was clear on how important Jesus was to him. And Paul was thankful for today more than he was asking about tomorrow. 